The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and I am flying solo today. God damn. I tell you guys, man, in the Pacific Northwest right now, it is colder than a witch's tit. We had a bad freak snowstorm. Now, I know that you guys in the Midwest, but it gets like negative 100 degrees here. Yeah, well, it doesn't here, and people can't drive in the sunshine, much less in the goddamn ice and snow and shit. So just keep that in mind and, you know, like maybe a little prayer or something going, hey, I hope Scott doesn't like, you know, get ran over by some crazy ass grandma. All right. Here's what we're going to do today, boys and girls. Today, I'm going to be featuring a guy by the name of William Bill. He went by Bill Suff, a.k.a. The Riverside Prostitute Killer or Murderer, something like that. Anyway, let's get into it, right? The 1970s throughout the 90s uh, seems to have been like the pinnacle of the serial killers in, in Southern California. Those, get, those decades brought us people like Patrick Kearney, Randy Kraft, William Bonin, and Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Sorry, guys, I had to burp. Maybe I should have eating breakfast later. Anyway, as well as a variety of other ki- killers that, that can be imaginable. What I mean is, it seems to be a killer for every group of people out there. You had those who preyed on the gay community, those on the elderly, homeless, kids, and of course, prostitutes. Now, the killing of prostitutes is nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning of prostitution. Because, you know, they're, they're easy to victimize. They're, they're what we've called before the throwaway people that nobody really cares, um, you know, if, if they're attacked or not. And it's not a problem until it becomes a problem, especially in this day and age. It's not a problem until the media gets involved or those who actually, you know, work the prostitution beats actually notice and go, hey, wait a minute, we got a bunch of people missing. Today I present to you a real monster, though. His name is William Sup, a.k.a. the Riverside Prostitute Killer and the Lake Elsinore Killer. So William Sup, a.k.a. Bill, was born in Torrance, California on August 20th of 1950 to Elizabeth and William Sr. Sup. And from what I gather, Elizabeth was overbearing. Like, she's just a really overbearing and demanding mom. His father, however, wasn't really emotionally there he was just kind of like, fuck it, I don't give a shit, right? You know what kind of people I'm talking about, though, that just kind of go through the motions without really kind of feeling it? On the outside of the stuff home, it looked pretty regular, right? It's well-rounded, and you know, people are like, hey, the stuffs are okay people. But behind closed doors, however, it was a much different story, and it was filled with a lot of violence. Bill, our boy we're talking about today, learned early on that he can get what he want, wanted through violence, um, and as I've mentioned before, you know, behavioral conditioning. Where, you know, you, if you raise a child in a violent household, you're, you're giving them the behavioral conditioning to become violent later on. So just kind of keep that in mind for your, for your youngins. When Bill was just a teenager and still in high school, his dad left the family behind. He's like, adios, I'm out of here, tired of y'all. And I guess he had, you know, enough of the family life. He left Elizabeth behind to raise five kids. Five! God damn, get off her, dude. 
And they were very poor. They, they, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, but Bill did try to help out. And he got himself a part-time job while he was in school to help out, you know, paying the bills, feeding the family, that type of thing, right? So some things to keep in mind in that situation. With Bill working to support the family, and I'm thinking he you know, would think that he's kind of the, the, the man of the house, so to speak, um, that would come with certain privileges. I'm not saying, you know, anything for like a sexual connotation or, or, you know, anything like that. But you're going to get a lot more freedoms because you're a breadwinner. You're bringing in money to the house. And uh, I would imagine that he was partially maybe responsible for even raising his siblings. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I'd imagine he also had, like I said, a good deal of freedom. You know? So just wrap your head around that. But after a while... Elizabeth met a new man and got married again. And it was said this new husband, he wasn't abusive by any means, but he's very strict on the kids, including Bill. And, you know, now, with this new dude in her life, Bill's not going to have so many freedoms because he's a high school kid. And I imagine stepdad is like, no, man, you're, you're used to doing all this shit. You got to pull your head out of your ass. And, you know, be responsible. So while Bill was in high school, he met a girl by the name of Terrell. Now, Bill was 18 years old, and she was 15 at the time. He was in the marching band, and they met at a game where, you know, the marching band was playing. And they exchanged their phone numbers, and Bill went off to the Air Force to train to be a medic. This is after he graduated. He didn't, like, leave in the middle of class or anything and say, fuck off, I'm going to go train. He's out of high school, ships himself off to the, to the Air Force, which probably was the best thing for him. So, Bill and Terrell, they, they're writing back and forth, and, you know, and Bill was stationed in Texas. Bill then asked her to marry him, and she just said she couldn't because she had been raped and she was pregnant. Bill said that he still wanted to marry her anyway, like, I love you, you know, you know oh, young love. <laughs> they got married, and Bill told her a lie, that the Air Force didn't allow kids on the base, so she had to leave her newborn baby with Bill's mom and stepdad. So that she could come and join him in Texas. The life that she thought that she would have had, that, that she was going to, God damn it. I'm telling you people, I need a lot more copy to do this shit. Anyway, the life that she thought that she uh, was going to have with Bill was a fantasy to say the least. Within six months, he's, you know, starting to become more, he's becoming abusive. He's smacking on her, that type of thing, right? Well, Bill left the Air Force and shortly after that, their son, William Jr., was born. That's right. Let's fix our relationship with a baby. And you see that a lot, by the way, with a lot of relationships. People go, hey, man, our, our, our relationship is on the rocks. Boom. Let's have a baby because our close together. And it, it, I, I think it works 0% of the fucking time. So, but this new baby, right, Bill couldn't keep a job. He finally found work as a parking attendant. That And that lasted all of about six months before he was fired for stealing a customer's car. Now Bill was jobless, and it was on the shoulders of Terrell to work and pay the bills while Bill stayed home and, you know, with the kids. Take care of the kids. I'm going to go out and work. She was a waitress. You know, she worked as a waitress at a diner. Well, soon after that, they popped out another kid and named their kid. Oh, my God. I love this name because I'm gonna, I got jokes. Dejeuner. Yeah. Sounds like a condiment to me. I mean, who the hell names a kid that? Like, for real. Like, let, let's talk about that. Who in the right mind names their kid? I have never heard that name before 
in my damn life. Might as well have named your kid Mustard. Or Mayo. Or, this is my son, Worcestershire sauce. Yes, I can say the word correctly and not wash your sister sauce because that's called incest. So, Bill began to physically abuse their daughter, and they called their daughter Dee Dee. I wouldn't blame him after making that fuck up and saying, no, her name's Dijanay. Um, And Bill would end up killing Dee Dee on September 21st of 1973, when she was only two months old. So he calls Terrell at work and told her to come home because Dee Dee was not breathing. And sure enough, when she got home, her daughter was dead because she's not breathing. So Bill, he tries to tell the cops a bullshit story that Dee Dee uh, died because their son William Jr. was a bit too rough hugging and kissing her. Now wrap your head around that. That's a total bullshit story. Hold on, I have to edit something here. Because apparently... It put from kissing to killing. Anyway, the autopsy of two-month-old Dee Dee Suff would reveal a very, very different story. There was evidence of broken bones that were older than the current wounds, cigarette burns, and even bruises that were healing on Dee Dee's body. So both Bill and Terrell were charged with murder of their daughter and sent to prison for 70 years. They're like, okay, look here, you fucktards. Uh, I know you guys are bullshitting, and uh, Bill killed the kid, and we think that Terrell knew all about it. And what I can't personally understand is, so I'm listening to this interview with Terrell, right? And she said that, let me, uh, I'm going to try to quote this verbatim, but if it's not exact, don't kill me, Um, that she would have never thought that Bill would have killed their daughter. This is a guy who was constantly violent and had hurt their kids before, and yet Terrell didn't know nothing about it? Well, Terrell got off easy, because about 20 months later after she was in prison, Terrell was granted an appeal to her sentence, and the court found that there was not enough evidence against her to prove that she was involved in the death of Dee Dee. So she was exonerated, released from prison, and she immediately filed for a divorce when she was released. She gets out and she's like, I am filing this divorce against this peckerhead. Bill, on the other hand, he was being a good boy in prison. <clears throat> he volunteered to help whenever he could. He was just a model inmate. He served 10 years out of his 70 years and he was released. And then he moved right back to Southern California to Riverside. Uh, he found work at a bus station selling tickets for him and you know, and he liked his job. He was well-liked. Everybody's like, yeah, Bill's an okay guy. And later on, he found a new job at the Riverside County uh, as a supply clerk in their warehouse. He was once again well-liked by his fellow workers. You know, Bill's like the nicest guy ever. And I can, uh, let me tell you, this is my theory of why he was nice in prison, by the way. I think he's a coward. I mean, it's really easy to beat up on a baby. It's easy to beat up on your younger and smaller wife or girlfriend maybe not as easy to try to beat up on somebody who's your own size a big guy anything like that fucking coward anyway i die greg as i've said before where's the best place to hide and the answer is plain sight right in front of everybody and that's what bill did he's a friendly and help he's friendly and helpful to everybody he was everybody's buddy, so to speak. Not the hookers, of course. 
He even started dating a girl named Bonnie and moved in with her to help her take care of her sick grandma. Um, he's just a stand-up guy, right? Everybody's like, hey, man, Bill is out here. He's helping Bonnie with her, with her fucked-up grandma who's dying. You know, he's great at work, helps everybody out. Just what a sweet dude. And that is where is a perfect place to hide is. Get drinking my coffee and we'll continue. Just in case you're wondering what the dead air is, because Scotty needs a lot of fucking coffee today. Because <clears throat> you never hear about, uh, you know, this is kind of a side note in my brain right now. You never hear about, and I've said this before, people like me. Nobody's going to go, dude, it's that big biker guy next door with the long goatee and the bald head, and he looks aggressive all the time. It's always everybody's friend. Everybody's like, Bill? I don't think Bill could have done that. What a sweet guy. Anyway, on the outside, he's a stand-up guy. But on the inside, he was a monster in hiding. Bill and Bonnie split up after he got busted and admitted to stealing money from Bonnie's grandma. This is the same, yeah, the same chick who's sick and dying, right? Steals her money. That's a total dick move. This next part is the same story that we've heard with a lot of our killers that prey on hookers. Billy Boy here started cruising in the red light district for some hooker action. Uh, and he uh, and he didn't start looking in Riverside, though, where he, where he lived, right? He, he drives down to Lake Elsinore, which is about 30 miles away. And as he was buying hookers and cruising, his hatred inside of him for him just fucking grew. For no reason, really. I'm sure, well, I'm sure there's a reason. He probably has his own internal shit going on. But no outward reason. Something like hookers are sitting there going, you know, piss off or whatever. Then, on Jan- in January of 1989... It was time for him to kill. I guess it kind of bubbled over in him. You know, he's like, ah, now it's time for me to fucking, you know, kill a woman. You're talking about a guy who's naturally aggressive. So why not? Why not take out your aggressions on a, on a hooker? You know, because nobody's going to give a shit. He met and picked up Rhonda Jetmore, who was a hooker in Lake Elsinore. They talked for about a price, you know, and they agreed on 20 bucks to give him some leaven. And she gets into his van. And she says that she needs to get paid up front. Bill slides some cash into her hand. And Rhonda's not dumb, okay? She's not, she's not an idiot. She hauls out a flashlight and checks the cash. And sure enough, Bill had given her a dollar bill. instead, And not the 20 that they had agreed on. And Rhonda's pissed. And she said, I, I'm not going to fuck you for a buck, dude. That's just that basically what she said. She said, dude, it's, we, we agreed. It's, it's 20 bucks. Give me my fucking money. And Bill launches himself at her. He tries to kill her, or at least rape her, right? Hey, get everything you can for a buck, I guess. Rhonda knows how to play the game, though, and starts to beat the shit out of Bill with her flashlight. She gives him some good whaps across the head and manages to get out of the van, and she runs off. Now, before I go on, let's just take a moment to be proud of this smart girl, okay? In a world where hookers get killed a lot, and I mean a lot, this girl managed to stay alive because she was being prepared and because of her quick thinking. Like she thought on her toes. Proud of you, Rhonda. If you ever hear this, I am I'm very patty, proud of you, Miss Jetmore. So Bill learned something about Rhonda. Okay, well, at least from her. If he was gonna assault him, you better kill him. So Bill went out hunting again in June of eighty nine in Lake Elsinore, and he found Kimberly Little. Now, Bill picked her up and drove her to a secluded place where they could, you know, have a little bit of fun. 
And what Kimberly didn't know was that her idea of fun and Bill's idea of a good time were totally different. Bill strangled her and then stabbed her and raped her. And he, so he, he, he redresses her body, right? And this is just something that I had to shake my head at. He redresses her and puts his own shirt on her and buttons up the shirt. And as where Rhonda was a smart cookie, Bill was not. He left behind a ton of DNA evidence all over her body, including semen and fibers and things like that. Then to top it all off, he covered her with a blue towel. Now, Kimberly, she knew Bill because he was one of her regular customers. Like, you know, they boned all the time for cash. They kind of had their routine. And it makes sense, by the way, because what, who's easier to kill than somebody that trusts you, somebody that you know, you know, oh, oh, or so I heard, you know, so I've heard. I would have never done that. <laughs> so it was speculated that he covered her up with the towel because, you know, he couldn't look at her. I think that he covered her up because he's a goddamn freak, okay? He didn't give a shit or care that he knew her or not. She could have been anybody. She, I think he still would have done it because it. it's, I think it's another move for control. Obviously, with his history of abuse and everything like that, he definitely has control issues. And, you know, that kind of accompany that abuse. Need more coffee. I am so sorry for the dead air, guys, but it's, it's coffee time. So Bill, he chills out for a while with the killing. He's feeling good, you know, getting hookers, having sex, and not killing them. That was until about six months later. On December 12th of 89, Bill went back to Lake Elsinore, and that's where he found 23-year-old Tina Leal. Now, Bill then, you know, dumped her body in nearby Paris, California on a dirt road. Yeah, you can guess it. He, you know, he killed her. It's, it's going to be the same method, by the way. Throughout the whole thing, he uh, had a very distinctive way that he developed in his killing. Um, so anyway, Tina had also been redressed in men's clothes and had plenty of DNA on her as well. But keep in mind, the, the DNA testing in 89 is way different than it is today in 2024. I mean, now they basically they had, um, when it came to semen, secretor, non-secretor, they could take your blood type. But they couldn't really splice atoms, so to speak, and go, hey, the DNA matches up. There's plenty of, so let's just call it biological, I guess, uh, information that he had left behind. So, when the murder cops came to check out the body, they found, and this is what's going to end up being his calling card, four very distinct knife wounds in Tina's chest. And the uh, the wounds looked like they were made by somebody who he basically he took a lot of time with her, and uh, you know uh, he he wasn't rushed. He didn't kill her by stabbing her in the chest. He killed her by strangling her. But he had placed strategically placed those four cuts, those four stab wounds in her chest. So the uh, I say the very distinct. Okay, so anyway, they they take her off. They get her autopsied, right, and. The the autops not the autopsist, the pathologist made a startling discovery. Get ready for this, boys and girls. You ready? You're sitting down. There was an intact light bulb that had been inserted into Tina's vagina. 
Now, that takes some time, I would think, no matter if she was dead or alive. We can assume, though, that she was dead when it happened, right? Like, she's not alive going, hey, put this light bulb up me. I don't think that's going to happen. But still, not to break a light bulb in 1989, it's not, you know, it's glass. It's not like the LED ones we have now that you can, you can drop them, and it's really not going to do a whole hell of a lot. Um, that takes time, patience. So that tells me he spent a lot of time with this body, a lot. So now, Bill has two hookers that he's killed, and I'm sure that he was gaining some confidence in his killing. A month after he killed Tina, he was ready to go out and get himself another girl. He found what he was looking for, by the way, when he found Darla Ferguson, once again, Lake Elsinore. So he's not killing close to home. You know, he's not getting girls like that live next door. He's going 30 miles away, which actually is a smart move. That old saying, you never shit where you eat. And that's what he's doing right now. He's not, he's going out. He's not doing it. You know, where he could be number one suspect. Because, hey, we see him all the time. Once again, he strangled her after having sex with her and dumped her body along a roadway on the outskirts of Lake Elsinore. She had been stripped of her clothes and covered with a large plastic, black plastic garbage bag that had been tied at the waist. At this point, there's three dead hookers, but the cops didn't know that they were all linked together. However, soon, a pattern is going to emerge and that's going to link all the victims together. And that pattern's going to be those stab wounds. Yeah, I know. I'm a buzzkill. I could have made y'all wait for it, but yeah, there you go. So two weeks later, Bill must have been feeling the itch again, right? Uh, not crabs, by the way. But maybe, maybe he's with hookers. You could have crabs. I don't know. I don't judge. You're with hookers, dude. I'm just saying, get the special soap. Get the special soap. So he went out to take another girl's life. This time, he decided to hunt, though, a little closer to home on University Avenue, which is known as Riverside's Red Light District. He found Carol Miller. He strangled her and left his calling card on her chest as well the four stab wounds. He dumped her in a nearby grapefruit orchard where she was found the next day by the folks who work at the orchard. You know, fruit pickers, basically, and, you know, gardeners, people who take care of the damn orchard. So, when the detectives found the four distinct chest wounds on her, you know, the, the knife wounds on her chest, one detective remembered that another girl in Lake Elsinore had the same stab wounds. And it was at that point that they started to figure that they probably had a serial killer. Like, they're getting the first indication, like, I think we have a, a serial killer going along. But, you know, we got to find some shit out. So, while the murder cops are hard at work, so is our Billy Boy. He kept up his gruesome hobby at night, and by day, he was everybody's buddy. Yeah, Bill wouldn't hurt anybody, right? What a great guy. Bill was the poster child for good deeds. Riverside had a rideshare program that featured our buddy Bill here standing next to the same van that he used for his killings, and the poster read, Take a Ride with Bill. I think there's a few that wish that they hadn't, by the way. Like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have taken a ride with this freaking nature. All in all, though, things seem to be going pretty well for Bill. Everybody at work likes him, his job is good, and he even started to date a new girl. Now, this girl was about 20 years younger than Bill, though. (coughs) You gotta love daddy issues and bad choices, right? That's for all you girls out there that have daddy issues and want to make bad choices. Jesus Christ, I think I'm fucking dying over here. 
Oh, God dang. I'm telling you guys, I got to have somebody clean my house. The fucking allergies are killing me. Anyway, her name was Cheryl. Not the same Cheryl that's a friend of mine in Illinois. This is a way different Cheryl. And her, her name was Cheryl, and she was still a teenager when Bill and her got together. Now, she was over 18, but still a teenager. It wasn't too long before she and Bill got married. Bill took her to Las Vegas, and they got hitched. And I would like to think that they got married by Elvis, but, but probably not. But in my mind, if I ever got remarried, Elvis, all the way, all the way. So, a little bit of another side note for y'all. There is a reason why abusive people tend to find others who are younger than them or weaker than them, okay? If the person that you're with is a lot younger, uh, such as a teenager versus Bill, there's 20 years going on there, um, it's easier to control them and it's easier to mold them into what you want them to be. Things like, you know, how to act and what to do and say or even think. Being old enough to be her father, there might have been a need to gain approval from Bill in a fatherly way, which makes sense. I'm, I'm not denying that she probably loved him and all this good shit because he was a very, you know, he's very manipulative, but a charming dude. Um, but I'm thinking that she's needed some, you know, fatherly kind of, you know, hey, I approve of your actions type of a thing. Anyway, it wasn't long after they got married that, of course, Cheryl got pregnant. And I see a pattern here. Do you? For someone who doesn't want to be a dad, he sure spreads the seed around. I mean, it's the 80s. We had birth control for fuck's sakes, right? <clears throat> Even though Bill was, you know, had gotten married, was happily married, the need to kill him was strong. And he needed to go get another victim. So he came up with a story. And this is what he tells his pregnant wife. And I'm a little impressed with it because he thought it out. Okay, now, I don't like Bill's stuff as a person. And I'll explain why at the end of this uh, episode. Because I actually wrote him. He got a response. Um, But thinking it out and planning. This was good, okay? So, he told her that he's participating in the disaster readiness program through Riverside County. He went as far, get this, to get brochures about the program. So he's got those at the house, everything like that. Seems totally legit. You got the brochures, and that's why you're out to two in the morning. Okay, it makes sense. <coughs> so seven months after he was married, he claimed his next victim. And her name was Cheryl Cokeout. And she was 33 years old. After he had sex with her, he killed her like he did all the rest of them, right? And he, but this time here, he cut off her breast, and he threw it so hard it went up an embankment, like quite a ways away from where her body was. And he must have just really chucked that sucker, like, good, good, because it was far away from her body. He disposed of her in a trash dumpster. dumpster. Uh, this was Bill's fifth victim, and as you can tell, he is escalating. His times had become shorter, and uh, and during some periods, uh, and the mutil, you know, the times are becoming shorter. Is my my point here? And now he's mutilating the bodies even more, and he's really getting more grotesque in his uh, in his mutilation. He hadn't cut off anybody's tits before, and now this time here, lops one off, chucks it. So then, only seven weeks later, he went out again. He found a girl named Susan Stemfield. 
Yep, she was a hooker as well. They're all hookers, by the way, in this case, in case you're wondering. Um, So she was also murdered in the same fashion as all the others and placed in a dumpster um, close to where he had dumped Cheryl's body, his previous victim. On January 18th of 91, the hunt was on again. This time, he found 42-year-old Kathy Puckett. She was working on University Ave. And when she, you know, left with Bill, she takes off with Bill. Her body was found on a dirt road 30 miles away from University Avenue. The thing is that the tire tracks that they found matched the tracks that they had discovered at the grapefruit orchard. That's right, because it's the loose dirt. So they're taking pictures again, right? They're like, hey, this is the same, this is the same shit going on. And this was the first time, though, that they had new evidence that tied some of the murders together outside of the stab wounds to the chest. Concrete proof that it was the same vehicle that transported these girls to their demise. It was then that they created a task force to find their killer. It was made up of law enforcement from both Riverside and Lake Elsinore Police Departments. And the detectives began to look for matches for tire prints so that they could identify what kind of tires they were. They also found shoe prints. They had taken pictures of them, you know, and everything like that. So they're, they're looking for the shoes and they're looking for the tires. <clears throat> so on August 15th, Bill was cruising around Riverside again, and he found a girl named Kelly White Cloud. I dig that name. I really do. That's, a, that's an interesting name. Anyway, they talked about what she charged for sex, and she got into the van. But she wanted to get a burger first, right? She's feeling hungry. She says, hey, man, take me to McDonald's. Let me get a burger, you know, before we go and do the dirty deeds done dirt cheap. So when she gets back into the van, she goes into the McDonald's. You know, she she gets herself some food. She gets back into the van and Bill's like, hey, I want to take you to this uh, secluded place. It's this orchard so we can, you know, kind of get it on. And Kelly's like, nah, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere with you because I don't blame her, man. You can't trust him. <coughs> so Bill starts to become aggressive, and Kelly must have had spider senses because she started to get this feeling that something's, it's, something's just not right. So they start arguing about it, and Bill became aggressive. And when Bill took off, she opened the door and jumps the fuck out. She's like, I'm out of here. And she was one of the lucky ones, and she got away. So, Kelly, she goes back to University Avenue to catch her breath before going back to work in the streets. And she saw her friend, Kelly Hammond, getting into the same van that she had just escaped. So, she was either too far away to be heard or her friend ignored her. And her friend, this Kelly Hammond, got into the van van with Bill. They take off. So, Kelly Hammond died like all the rest of them. You know, and to top it off, she was dumped behind an office building with her legs straight up in the air. Um, and she, cause she was posed that way. Bill takes her, poses her, right? Cause now he is showing off. She was found the next day on August 16th by a person who worked in the office buildings where she was dumped. <clears throat> so, Detective Catherine uh, Sheffield had a really good relationship with the girls who worked on University Ave, okay? And she also knew both of the Kellys, and she knew that they were good friends. So she set out to find Kelly Whitecloud, and sure enough, she finds her. She let her know that her friend had been murdered, 
Kelly then told uh, Detective Sheffield about her ordeal and that she dealt with, uh, you know, that she had dealt with uh, and seeing her friend get into the van and and all that stuff. And Kelly gave a very detailed description, not only of the guy who was driving the van, but the van itself. And now the cops had a good lead and kind of knew what they were looking for, you know. They had a sketch artist come out and they drew up a composite, you know, of the killer based on Kelly's description. So Detective Sheffield was asked to give an update to her bosses and she noticed that the killer had killed white and Spanish girls, but not any black girls. So her bosses decided to do a press release and inform, and that information ended up getting leaked, uh, printed, rather, to the, uh, to the newspapers. True to form, Bill reads it, and his next vism, vism, victim was a black hooker named Catherine McDonald. He picked her up on September 12th, and she had been stabbed and strangled like all the others. This time, he drove 30 miles away to Lake Elsinore, right back to where he started hunting the first time, and dumped her at an abandoned work site. But this location had a lot of soft dirt, and the cops were able to get a very good tire and shoe impression. Uh, and a lot of them. Bill was getting bolder and bolder and didn't seem to care about leaving any evidence behind. He had no fucks to give. So check this out. While the cops are there and they're investigating his latest victim, right? Uh, the body of Catherine uh, and the crime scene. Bill was at work at the warehouse and two new detectives come in to get some office furniture for their offices. They're brand new. Both their pagers go off. And if you don't know what a pager is, at the time we had these little things we would wear on the side of our belt and they can call a number. And they would, uh, it would go off and it would show the number of the person that wants you to call them. So that's... If you're if you're Gen X like the rest of us, then we know what they were. So, anywho, the, the the detectives say, "Hey, man, can we use your phone so we can call in see what this is about?" Bill says, "Sure." And as they talked and took notes on the body that they had found, Bill's listening to them. So he's he's getting all the information of the body that he had left behind that they're investigating right then and there. Back at home, though, things were getting more aggressive. Tensions are rising to the point that his young wife, Cheryl, had to leave him with the baby because Bill was being abusive to their baby girl. Yeah, like I said, fucking there's a pattern. So being good at manipulation, Bill convinced her to give him another chance and she came back to him. And as an early Christmas gift, Cheryl bought him uh, a pair of Converse sneakers and gave them to him early, just before Christmas and everything. And that would be a very important puzzle piece later on. On October 30th, Bill was out hunting again, and he found Delia Zamora, who was 35 years old. She, of course, was killed as well. Then there was 39-year-old Eleanor... I'm going to fuck this name up. Casares, that's what it is. Eleanor Casares, that he got two months later. She got... Her in, he got her in broad daylight. Uh, that's what I meant to say. Give me one moment, please hold. Anyway, he he picked her up in broad daylight, so that tells you how bold he's getting. Like I cannot be, you know, ain't no stopping me now. On top of that, after he killed her, he dropped her body just a block away from the Riverside Police Station, and he had also cut off her breast. Again, though, Bill left behind DNA evidence and shoe prints. 
Detective Sheffield decided to set up a sting operation to catch their killer. She had people walking up and down University Avenue looking for the man in the sketch, as well as, as, well as the van. And on January 9th of 92, it paid off. A motorcycle cop, sorry, got a burp again, saw the van that fit the description that he had been given, so he followed it up University Avenue. And when the van did an illegal U-turn, the cops stopped the van. Like, boop, stop, woo, pull over. And there was Bill Suff. His driver's license and the vehicle res- registration were both expired. The cops started to take a closer look when he found a fishing knife that had what looked like blood on it. So he calls for backup. And Detective Sheffield, she gets on the radio, and she uh, asks him, hey, what are the tires on the front and back of the van? Because the thing with these is that one of the tires was different and very distinct. He calls back, gives her the information. She goes, this is our dude. Lock down the scene. You see, because of the soft dirt and all the tire tracks that Bill had left behind, they knew that one of the tires was different, like I said. That's how they got it. Remember me mentioning the soft dirt? There you go. Bill was arrested, and the detectives were able to link even more evidence to the victims. Things like, you know, there was cat hair from Bill and Cheryl's cat, fibers from the gray carpet in Bill's van, even the shoes that they found in his home as well. And we're not talking the Converse sneakers. They matched those. But he had an older pair in, uh, in, in, his, in his home that they matched as well to the footprints, uh, shoe prints rather, that they found at the murder scenes. So the trial, it lasted seven months. There was over 200 people that testified and over a thousand pieces of evidence that were submitted in the case. On July 19th of 95, the jury found Bill Suff guilty of 12, on 12 of the 13 of his hooker victims. So 14 in total when you consider he killed his own child. <coughs> And he was given that death penalty, and he's currently serving in San Quentin Prison in California. So, you remember me telling you that I wrote him, okay? Uh, I couldn't retrieve my messages that I sent him, but I remember what the hell I said. So, we're going to go over that, and I'm going to tell you why I don't like him, okay? Um, I, I wrote to him, and I asked, uh, I asked to talk to him before I did the episode. And at first he said he would, he'd think about it. Later on, he came back with a wild story about why he could not do a podcast. Most of what he said I found to be not truthful. I can't seem to pull up like I said, my messages, but I pulled up Bill's, and I'm going to paraphrase mine uh, as accurately as I can. My first message was, like, like, like I said, uh, it said, hi, I, I introduced myself. Told him about the podcast, you know, told him about the show. And I said that I'd like to talk to him to know the real him before I do the episode. I also told him that uh, I talked to a few people in the same prison. So if he needs to vet me, he can. His reply, hi, Scott, send me some names. I'll talk to them, then decide Bill L. Suff. Okay. I gave him a few names uh, and thanked him for his time. His reply went from hi, Scott, to hello, Mr. Alexander. I just got off the phone with my attorney. I read your email to her, and she told me not to do it, which was my first thought, too. Well, no, it wasn't. I don't do any interviews of any kind. Over the years, several talk show hosts have tried to reach out to me to get my side of the story out there. 
Jerry Springer, Geraldo Rivera, Howard Stern, Lisa Gibbons, Jenny Jones, and other lesser-known talk show hosts, including other podcast hosts. Bullshit, because uh, especially Jerry Springer, I don't think he's ever done a... Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that. Anyway, let me just read you his, his reply, then we'll get to the rest of this. Um, at the urging of my attorney, I refuse to talk to any of them. And to back up why, and it's, it's in big fucking bold print, I don't want to be on their programs. Geraldo Rivera recorded me talking to his assistant, telling her why I didn't want to be on his talk show. Then someone spliced together my voice to answer incriminating questions, and Geraldo aired my spliced answers on his show when he interviewed my mother, sister, and brother on his shows. That program split the relationship between me and my family. I've never talked to any of my siblings or my mother since. That program and my family hurt me and my appeals immeasurably. So I'm sorry, but I will not do any kind of interview with anyone, whether you want to talk to me about my case or anything else. There's no way we could uh, I could talk to you about there's no way you could talk about or to me without my case being brought into it. No disrespect meant to you or your podcast. I just can't be a part of that. Respectfully, Bill L. Suff. I replied uh, that I understood and I thanked him for his time. Okay. The thing is with his family, his family stopped talking to him from what I read when he got arrested and convicted. Plus, Jerry Springer, as I said, I don't think he ever did anything with serial killers. He's more of a trailer park trash guy. And I also doubt that Geraldo Rivera recorded him talking to anyone and altered the recording. That's too much of a risk for being sued. It's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Um, I don't understand why he felt the need to tell me such an asinine story. He could have just been like, because I've, I've talked to, oh, fuck, a lot of Convicted criminals, okay? Not just serial killers, but, you know, uh, others uh, that have done different things from robberies and, you know, like one homicide. Gang members, drug runners, that type of thing. If they don't want to be on the show or they don't want to give me their side, this, hey, no, you know, I'm good. No, I don't want to do it. But not Bill. Bill has to write this whole convoluted story. All right, boys and girls, that's all I have for this episode. Remember... You can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook. Join us on the page of Citizens of Brutal Nation. Now, we do have another Brutal Nation page, but the one that we interact on the most is Citizens of Brutal Nation. Just letting you know that. This show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying, thieving bastards. And we will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye.